0: We are continuing our The Big Book cover to cover today, and as you know, we are now in the book of Amos. Uh, Amos is uh, perhaps the earliest of the so-called minor prophets, and it's dating, and there is some discussion on these books we can't always know. But more than likely, it was between 790 and 730 B.C., So that gives us a little bit of a parameter. We know from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it's not a definitive timestamp, but it is an interesting timestamp. We read, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before The earthquake, this earthquake, we don't know precisely what it is, but it is a tempting reference. It was something in that time people knew what it was. We would say Pearl Harbor, 9-11, that group of people that would be uh, during the time of Amos would know what that earthquake was. Well, that doesn't stop uh, scholars and uh, people from trying to find out what that is. So we we like to look at these things. Uh, Zechariah 14.5, if you have cross-references in your Bible, you might see a cross-reference to that uh, where the earthquake is mentioned. Do you know the name Josephus? Josephus was a a, a Jewish scholar who wrote Antiquities. And uh, this is the kind of book, if you're a super nerd, you might like, Um, but it's not an easy read. It's not a cover to cover read. It's a reference, but you nibble at Josephus. Uh, Back in the early days of evangelicalism, uh, we look to Josephus as sort of the first living historian, a Jewish historian, talking about the life of Christ going forward after the New Testament. So he's an interesting author, and uh, we could probably say with 80% uh, reliability, maybe less and more depending on the stories. But he has some interesting speculation on this, and I'm going to read part of it. Um, Again, we can't say for sure, but this is a person who lived close to the time, the history was oral tradition was passed down, and so Josephus Antiquities of the Jews is an important document. Um, but let me just read part of what he says. This is parallel, perhaps, to 2 Chronicles 26. And there was a story there where there's this king named Uzziah, and he is a man of arrogance and pride and great hubris. And I'll just read um, the references, Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 20. But let me read Josephus. In the meantime, a great earthquake shook the ground, and a rent, a tear, was made in the temple. And bright rays of sun shone through it and fell on the king's face, insomuch as leprosy seized him immediately. And before the city, that place is called Agrog, uh, which, by the way, might be the Mount of Olives, um, which half the mountain broke off from the from the west and it rolled down. Anyway, it goes into the uh, to to the priest. Uh, I mean, to to the the king's residence. And what, what this story goes on to explain is he goes in under hubris and he offers a sacrifice. Well, uh, the prophets come in, 80 more prophets come in, you can't do this. And in his hubris, uh, he's uh, he's enraged at them confronting him, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. Now he's in the temple. This is a big no-no at every level. And so they hurry him out because he's unclean. They get him out of the temple complex. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles, he remained the rest of his life separated from the Jewish community and he was a leper until his end. So uh, Josephus ties this together because um, he believes at that time there was an earthquake. Now again, we can't connect these dots, but it's just interesting that an ancient person would talk about uh, there was an earthquake. And it happened, it coincided with this egregious act of King Uzziah. Perhaps more to the point is uh, archaeology, uh, as there, it looks like Hazor in your Bible. It's Hazor and Samaria. There are digs, and as recently as last January 2019, I was going to show you the uh, hyperlink because some of you like these things, but our program doesn't like hyperlinks. Um, but this is called, scientists finally agree about the earthquake in the days of Amos, but which one, and they go on to talk about which earthquake. But what's interesting about this is the archeological dig, which they chronicle here, is just a few miles from this very area. And so it was, it was a benchmark. It was a timestamp. Did all that happen during King Uzziah's reign? I don't know, but what we do know is in Amos one, there's a reference point to something that they would all understand in that worldview. Our friends Boa and Wilkinson write, um, Amos prophesied during a period of national optimism in Israel. But below the surface, greed and injustice were festering. And this, I think, is the money line of their their statement. Hypocritical religious motions had replaced worship. Hypocritical religious motions had replaced true worship, creating a false sense of security and a growing callousness to God's disciplining hand. Famine, drought, plagues, death, destruction, nothing could force the people to their knees. Amos, the country farmer turned prophet, lashes out at the sin unflinchingly, trying to visualize the nearness of God's judgment and mobilize the nation to repentance. The nation, like a basket of rotting fruit, stands ripe for judgment because of its hypocrisy and spiritual indifference. Uh, Scholars will compare Amos and Hosea side by side. Hosea would be, let's say, a more loving, genteel, confronting prophet. Amos is right in your face, which, you know, if you're not going to name your cat Jezebel, maybe Amos is okay, but still not happy about that, but I forgive you. Um, Amos is a peasant. He's a herdsman. He's not in the line of prophets. He's not in the line of, of priests. In fact, he even identifies himself. He's an unlikely, if not unqualified person until God chooses, chooses him. And in Amos 7, he replies to Amaziah, Then Amos said to him, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. And I often quote that when I say, I'm not the son of a, a cousin of a prophet or even a fig picker. Uh, but I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock of the Lord and said to me, Go. Prophesy to my people, Israel. That phrase always intrigues me. He took me from following the flock. David uses the same language. Not leading the sheep. Following the flock. It's, I think, a a very important state of humility. Uh, Not to be too indelicate, but what happens if you're following a bunch of sheep? What are you walking in? If you're leading them, you're not walking in that. But if you're following them, I promise you, you're walking in it. So it's almost like I'm just a lowly shepherd. Not only that, I, was, I, was, I wasn't even shepherding these sheep for the most part. I was just following them in the wilderness to make sure they got fed and found water. Um, so he, what he's saying, in a, and, I, and I mean this in a good, deprecating way, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. God appointed me to bring this message. In Hosea, again, we read of God's love through the judgment. Uh, Amos is very clear that this is an issue of righteousness, of justice and God is going to implement His wrath and justice the way He sees fit. Um, Some general observations I like to do with some of these books, and again, when you're reading, this is a short book, it's only 9 chapters, 146 verses. You can probably read it in less than 7 minutes. Um, But in these verses you'll see 88 times the I reference. Now that may seem like a silly point, but God's speaking. Most of these I's are God's message through Amos. Secondly, 83 times the Lord. Third, 51 times I will. And this jumps off the page when you think about 146 verses, and a third of those have a declarative statement, most of the time God is the reference about what He's going to do. Listen to some of these. I will not revoke punishment. I will send fire. I will also break. I will not revoke punishment. I will cut off. I will even unleash my power. I will kindle a fire. I will punish you for all your iniquities. I will punish the altars of Bethel. I will also smite the winter house. I will not accept. I will not even listen to the sounds of your harps. I will rise up against you. I will never forget any of their deeds. I will turn your festivals into mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I will shake the house of Israel. You can't miss it. God is gonna act and it's not gonna be a fun experience. 21 times says the Lord, six, uh, 10 times transgression, six times here, to look, precisely to hear the word of the Lord, and then five times in that day. And I point out the last one even though it's not frequent because in these minor prophet, prophetic books, they're looking forward to something. Remember, the book is written in a context for the readers, the hearers, but there's a number of applications. There's some prophecies that will be fulfilled in their lifetime, some later, and some in the eschaton, some in the end times. And uh, the book of Amos does this in a beautiful way. Uh, an outline, there are many, but an outline that's fairly easy. Four parts. Uh, the first two chapters are eight oracles. And again, if you just scan through your Bible, they're real easy to see the way your Bible's probably formatted. The oracle to Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon. Moab, Judah, and Israel. And the one to Israel is the most extensive and the most blistering. Uh, the second part, th- three, chapters 3 to 6, are three sermons. And we typically think of past, present, and future. Uh, the way Amos organizes it is present, past, and future for reasons of this is what you're doing that you need to address. This is what was the past. But this is what you're doing leads the argument. And then the third block, chapter 7 through part of chapter 9, are five visions. The locusts, the fire plumb line, as Christy pointed out, and Messiah, summer fruit, and the sword of judgment. And each are an interesting study of them in their own right. And then finally, the last six verses of chapter 9 is the fourth block, the five promises. And these promises are remarkable. Uh, the word tent is used, which d- probably describes the divided kingdom. Under the Davidic time, there was a united monarchy. The divided kingdom is most of their life. Remember, Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. So what he's saying is there's going to be a tent, most likely Davidic, most likely Messianic at the end, of course, that's going to uh, come back, if you will. They're going to be returned to this united kingdom. Um, the walls will be rebuilt. Uh, Israel's remnant will return, along with nations. And the word in chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 11 or 12, I think, is Goyim. We'll look at it in a minute. Goyim. Remember we talk about Goy. It's, some, it's not necessarily a derogative term, but it can be used that way. The Goyim were other nations than the Jew. Remember, this system, if you want to call it a religion, was the Jew's religion. It was given uh, to, by God to Abraham. The father of the Hebrew nation, the the father of the Jews. And although the nations are mentioned throughout Abrahamic covenant to the end of time, most people disregard that. They don't don't understand that. If you're a Gentile Christian, which all of us are, except maybe a few of you might have some Jewish history, um, we're, we're, we're grafted on to a Jewish system. We have a Jewish Messiah. Jesus, of course, completes and fulfills what the law and the believers of the old could not fulfill. Uh, it goes on to uh, talk about uh, this new Drew, the, the, the reference to what's going to happen in the future. There's a fascinating passage, you, you BSF for Precepts uh, community guys, you will love this. In the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, there's a reference to Amos chapter 9. And it's remarkable how they're explaining. Uh, the question for the council was, how Jewish do you have to come to become a Christian? That's an important question. All of Jesus' disciples are, are Jewish. The gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So when Paul takes the gospel out, for those of us going to uh, Greece and Turkey here in a few months, uh, the gospel's going out. It's a Jewish gospel, if you will, going out to a Gentile, Goyim population. Well, they don't know anything about Judaism. How Jewish do you have to be to become a Christian? This is a big issue. And the Jerusalem Council will attempt to settle that in Acts 15. So you can see how the apostles would look at the book of Amos. They would call on this to say, oh, this is a blessing to the nations. Other people can come to Christ, too, we'd say. Um, We've talked about a chiasm, a word maybe we haven't used before is a palistrophe. palistrophe. That basically means a big, giant chiasm. So the whole book is a chiasm. Uh, By the way, I interviewed uh, Dr. Wendy Witter, I think is her name, last week on the book of Daniel. And uh, she spent 10 years studying Hebrew Aramaic and the book of Daniel and written a commentary on it. And I said twice in the interview, where were you when I was writing the sermon on Daniel? Um, it, she was blow- Hannah and I were listening. She was blowing our minds. That episode will be released in about four or five weeks. Make sure you listen to that. Her, her g- grasp of Daniel was just mind boggling. And we talked a lot about these kiastic structures and she has the whole book mapped that way with some things that I had never seen. Of course, if you spend 10 years studying one thing, you better know something, right? Uh, she's a brilliant lady and it was such a great interview. All that to say, uh, Amos is also one big chiastic structure. I just want to look at chapter five. And again, some of you have seen these before. I don't mean to uh, uh, bore you with repetition, but I want to show you what is the point of this chiasm. So it starts, remember, AA prime, BB prime, CC prime, D in this case. So those AA prime have a parallel feature. BB prime makes sense. So let's look at what these are. These are somewhat attributed titles. First, we have this dirge that Israel has fallen in the first five verses. And the last part of chapter five, we have the mourning, the wailing. So the dirge would be Uh, comparative to a a depressing morning time, right? A funeral. Um, We have the call to seek the Lord in verses 4-6, to and then we have the call to seek good and not evil. So there's a parallel there. And then we have C.C. Prime, the complaint of injustice. The reason this is happening is because you're wealthy and you're egregiously acting poorly in your wealth. It's unjust. And so now here's the protestation of that injustice. And then the so-called doxology, um, doxology is a funny word. We sing doxologies um, it, it's the simplest way. Uh, ology is the study of something, biology, the study of life, zoology, the study of animal kingdoms, theology, the study of God. So uh, a doxology, doxa means glory technically. So the idea of a doxology when we sing a song is it should be a vertical song that's attributing glory. We don't talk about horizontal feelings in a, in a doxology. And doxology is worshiping God for who He is, His attributes, His character, His loving kindness, His forgiveness. It's a vertical thing. So it's an interesting, just to frame that, so verses 8 and 9 are the center of not only this chapter, but the book. And they read, I don't think I have this on screen, but you can listen. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth destruction upon the strong. So that destruction becomes the fortress. So it's a little bit cryptic, but this is the center of the book and it's, it's, in a way it's good news, but it's also bad news. Because as we saw in Hosea, judgment is going to come, but God is the one, the Lord is his name, who's going to rectify the situation. So Amos is essentially saying God Almighty is going to come. He's going to be a sovereign warrior. He's going to come and judge justly, righteously, decisively. Um, The primary judgment is going to be against his own people, Israel. It's the most difficult, the hardest part of his judgment. But he's also going to judge other nations. But in the end, after all this happens, there's going to be a great reward uh, for those for all eternity. Um, Let's look at some observations and lessons. And I've packaged, I think, six of these to look at. Uh, Number one, the Lord roars. The Lord roars. We see this in uh, three different times in Amos, Amos chapter 1, 2, three, four, and three, eight. The image is evergreen, a lion roaring. If you've been to Africa on safari, I have not, but I hear people talk about this and and you'll get all the lesson about when a lion roars. Apparently a lion can be heard like five miles when he or she roars. Uh, Of course, you know, a lion has no no enemy, has no predator. No one deals with a lion. A lion is a remarkable animal as are many in the animal kingdom because they don't exercise, they don't work out. They don't wash their cholesterol. They eat raw meat. They eat no grains. They eat no fruits, no vegetables. And yet their strength, they can be an indolent animal all day long. The strongest, fastest, most fierce animal. Everything counterintuitive. We have to moderate what we eat, exercise, have labs done. We have to test ourselves. We've got to lose weight. We have to gain weight. We have to eat this, not eat that. We're going to eat paleo homeopathic dirt before it's all over. <laughs> You've got to eat organic dirt. You can't eat that regular dirt. You've got to be organic dirt. Use organic deodorant. You'll be better, right? I mean, goodness gracious. Lions do nothing, but they kill an the animal and eat it. And when they roar, unless you're crazy, you pay attention. It gets your attention. It's an evergreen metaphor. The Lord roars. When he speaks, the hair on the back of your neck should stand up and you should be afraid. That's what he's telling them. And you don't even care. The Lord roars. His judgments are loud. They're clear. It should strike fear in the heart of a Jew. It should strike fear in the heart of the Jews' enemies because they know who this God of the Jews is. So, not to be a one-to-one comparison, but when we ignore God, when we ignore the roar, if you will, when we live in sin, maybe we choose rebellious living, we ignore the warnings of Scripture. It's also interesting that this is parallel to a time of prosperity. Corey ten Boom prayed for the American Christian and the church to be persecuted for her beliefs because there was so much chaff in the church. And when you're wealthy and secure and healthy and have a a good job and your kids are all, you know, doing well and, you know, life is great and uh, life is beautiful, you don't need God. Persecution comes along and calibrates you. I don't know the answers, but I do observe that when people become apathetic to the things of God, that's the most dangerous time. Can't fix apathy. Can't make a person care about something they don't care about. You can't make me care about something I don't care about. You can shame me. I can shame you. We can use guilt and motivation, but it's very ineffective, and it's very short-lived. doesn't sustain. If it makes you feel guilty, over time, you'll ignore it. But God roars. And I've said this before. Maybe you disagree with me. That's okay. I think we need to reclaim a little bit of a holy fear toward God. Not to be afraid of him. Because in right relationship, we don't have fear. But when we're apathetic, when we choose to sin, when we ignore him, uh, I'm more concerned about a person apathetic than I'm a person who lives in sin. Maybe that's weird, but if you're in sin, eventually it's, you know, the guilt and shame is gonna, the Holy Spirit's gonna work on you. I say it often, the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience, and there'll be a point when this, okay, you'll cry uncle, but when you don't care, that's dangerous territory, and I think that's where Israel was that time. Secondly, I will 51 times, as I mentioned. Uh, I don't know when you read the Bible what catches your attention or if it's ADD or whatever, but when I read the Bible, if something jumps off the page at me in, in my copy of this in this text, the word "I will" is underlined every single time in the Book of Amos because it helps me visually when I go back to study it. And when I read those passages, "I will," "I will," "I will," I'll, you know. It, it causes me to go, okay, easily, well, what are you doing that God's saying, I will? That may not be the best way, but that is a way to apply it. And anything when you're reading scripture, if it, you know, I hate the, the language, but if it gives you a check, or if it stops you, or you wonder about it, or it makes you, what does that mean? Or that irritates me. I would stay with it a while. And I read those I wills, I will, I will, and you know, what do I doubt? What do I ignore? What, do, what am I apathetic about? What do I shrug my shoulders about when it comes to the Bible? Um, the end of the day, God is as good as His Word, and His Word's good. And so when you read those I wills, I think you and I should pay attention. And if it catches you, sit there for a while, read it for a while, take some notes in the margin. Um, the reason I underline all, all 51 of those is because when I go back to my notes, it helps me. What I've, if I've studied for a long time to find something, I, I won't remember it. You know, my line morning by morning, new verses I read. I mean, if I don't have a note down, I don't remember what I saw yesterday or the day before. So the underlining, and, and I, as much as I love the technology, use a, Bible, use a real Bible. Get some pens, you know. As my friend Dave says, I may not have read the Bible, but I've colored most of it. You know, uh, That's okay. If it helps you. I think there's something going on neurosynaptically. When you have an instrument in your hand and you're writing in your Bible, and I'm not going to shame you if your Bible's completely clean, uh, my Bibles, uh, after, after they get to a point where there's no room left, I get a new one off the shelf. Uh, this is the fourth one I've done that. I have one that I did that with that I lost. I still have a twang. It's just, I spent three years in seminary and two years in Hebrew and Ecclesiastes and all these notes from that Bible and it's somewhere between Walter Reed Hospital and the church we were in in Virginia. It still gives me a knot in my stomach. But I write them these notes for my own aid but then you know what I do with them? I'm going to give them to each of my adult kids. One of my kids already has one. And now i got, you know, some grandchildren along the way. So, oh, gosh, Lord, do I have to do one for each of my grandkids? Uh, this one I've been working on since 2008. So this is, a, this is a long one. I've had to glue it back together a few times. Um, why am I telling you this? I just don't think there's a substitute. I just don't think there's a substitute. You Nose know, in the book, a pen, a pad. You don't have to be as nerdish as me. You don't have to be a precept, be a separate. Community. That's great if you do this thing. It's wonderful. You don't have to do that. But there's no substitute from spending time in God's word. And if something trips you up, stop. Pray. What a novel thing. I don't know what this means, Lord. Take a few notes in the margin. It will change your life. Because God is as good as his word, and his word is good. Thirdly, what keeps us from returning to the Lord? Five times Amos uses this phrase, yet you have not returned, or something similar to that. You've not returned, declared the Lord. You've not returned. It's in close connection with the I will. So God said, I will do this, I'll bring fire, and yet you've not responded is the point. So it, in a way, it's like repentance, but it's a little different. Remember I said last week, repentance simply means at the base level, turning, turning. Uh, Peter says, stop sinning and do good. The Bible never just says stop sinning. It always gives us a way to redirect the, the, the bad thing we're doing to following God in a good and faithful way. And so what keeps us from returning? And that's the question that I ask when I'm reading this. Again, is it back to my own callousness? Is it, you know, I, I like to coddle the sin. I don't care what other people think. Uh, everybody, you know, the, the old silly uh, limerick we used to read, everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I think I'll go eat worms. Was it bite off the head, suck out the juice, throw away the skins? everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I think I'll go eat worms. Well, then you can justify doing whatever you want to do. Uh, People have disagreed with me in private over this uh, to the point I don't care. I think you need to be a student of your sin. Why and when Are you susceptible to sin? That's just being smart. Is it late at night? Is it when your wife has hurt your feelings? Your husband hurt your feelings? When your kids are driving you nuts? When are you tempted to do what you wouldn't normally do? When you're alone? When you're on travel? I don't know why we don't talk about it more. Travel is a difficult life. Because when you're somewhere else, you'll do things you won't do when you're home. When I worked with singles years ago, I would encourage them to do good work and go home. Go home. You don't have to hang out till one and two and three in the morning. I'm not here to make you miserable, but you don't really have to do that. Alexander White said, nothing good happens after 10. Probably make it 8.30, you know? <laughs> Unless you floss your teeth at 10, that's something good, but you know. You, no, it just doesn't happen. But we're, we're lemmings. We're pulled into this thing. Proverbs refers to those who don't return as fools. A hundred blows doesn't change a fool. You can beat them with a stick, and you can't get their attention. And to be a little indelicate here, there might be some fools in your life you need to walk away from. Not rudely or unkindly or saying nasty things, but there might be some people in your life that are just fools, and a hundred blows isn't going to change him or her. But more to the point, uh, what keeps you from returning? Amos 4, verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. That one gives me chills, I don't know about you. You're not gonna do this, you're gonna play the fool, you're not gonna repent, you're not gonna return to me, I'm giving you warning after warning after warning, prepare to meet your God, this is not gonna go well. That's why Hosea brackets it, you're gonna go through this, better you go through it repentant and asking forgiveness and seeking the Lord than go through it, callous in your sin, proud, enjoying your sin, living in your apathy, whatever it might be. I mean, I would say it this way, you can return to Him or you can face Him. And those are two very different experiences. Fourth, seek the Lord that you may live. Amos chapter 5, 4, and 6, and then verse 14 is a bit of a similar thought. Seek the Lord that you may live. The casual reader can see the progression in this book. We've got this roaring judgment coming loud and clear that should strike fear in anybody's heart or mind who has half a uh, look of sense. I will. He's going to do these things. Uh, whether you like it or not, you can be sure of this. Yet you don't return. You should return. If you don't return prepare to meet your God, now judgment's coming. Or you can seek the Lord, and that's his whole injunction here. Five, God will send a famine on the land. This comes from chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Why don't you read these with me? Amos chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. Read from the screen. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. you imagine a time when people look at there's a famine for the word of God? That seems so foreign to anything in my experience. people would want to know what does the word say there's two sides of this obviously the prophets aren't prophesying anymore The, the priests aren't doing their job the shepherds are failing but it'll be so bad they'll actually be looking for it there'll be a famine in the land and again we have to be careful when we bridge these applications but if you think of our country as a post-Christian culture, which I think is a fair observation, Uh, we've talked a lot about post-modernity till we're blue in the face, but if it's a post-Christian culture, and that would be, as Christians you're vilified. If you believe in a certain thing, you're hateful, you're intolerant. Um, When when the Obergefell uh, Supreme Court decision came down, I think it was Justice Kennedy said, uh, the test of this will be religious freedom. It's not just bait the cake, it's perform the wedding. And not just perform the wedding, sanction and endorse and celebrate the wedding. And if I remember correctly, and I may be wrong, Kennedy was pro obergerfeld but he was cautioning, this is going to leak over into religious freedom very quickly. And you won't be able to say what you want to say or believe what you want to believe. Men and women, we're there. We're a little bit isolated here in middle Tennessee. We're a little bit insulated from it, but we're there as a country. And if you're a Christian on the college campus and you say something about it, you're going to be ridiculed and mocked and called hateful and intolerant. Uh, someone sent me a clip the other day of a person who, uh, she, she was triggered because there were Christians there. Well, just reading it made me triggered. Well, who do I complain to? <laughs> who do I sue? I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, the good weird news in all this to me is, at some point, it becomes inane. It, it's, I, I call it pan Modernity—we've hammered it flat, and there's no truth that can stand up except your truth, which is a fool's errand. And at some point, maybe in our lifetimes, maybe in our kids or grandkids' lifetime, at some point, someone's going to stand up and say, "Wait a minute!" And God will use that man, that person, that woman, to speak truth, and the famine will be satisfied. Now, let me say this: the Holy Spirit. We know the images of salt and, and you know, make, this, make the person thirsty um, for the things of God. The Holy Spirit does this work. I, I don't think humans can orchestrate this. I think it's the mind of God working at his own schedule. And I don't think it's the work of man, it will be the work of God. But I pray we're faithful if the work of God occurs in our time. And again, one of the things I'm learning through this study of the overview is God has a lot different view of time than we do. None of these people experienced the blessings that are being talked about. Uh, Hebrews 11, all these died in faith, what? Without receiving the promises made to them. That seems like a kind of a bum deal. They had a long view. They had a long view. And that's the final lesson. God's future is bright. God's future is perfect. Perfect. And interesting, a book this hard and heavy ends with these five promises in Amos chapter nine, verses eleven to fifteen. Again, read with me. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth. Do we not have it here? Or are you just not reading? <laughs> Start with me again. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it, as in the old days, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them says the Lord your God. These five promises are a wonderful, wonderful ending that they're not going to get to see in their lifetime. Just a quick overview of some of these. The fallen booths, the picture of the tent, and more likely the idea of a monarchy, something that's overwhelmed, and now it's going to be reunited. Uh, the, the images of the the treader uh, overtaking the reaper—it's a beautiful image. We're, we're, we're barely time; it's, it's already past time, and we're, we're over. We can't plant the crops fast enough. The one sowing is overtaking the reaper. The the hills are going to drip with so much wine; it's going to be an overabundance in this future state. And then the last word I want to camp on is that they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land. And that word jumps off the page at the end of the story, because God brought a vine out of Egypt. And he was going to plant it, Scripture says, in the promised land. And of course, he was going to do it with his own hand in Psalm 90. They were choice vines. Isaiah says, his pleasant plantings. But God's vine became wild, Jeremiah speaks of. He wanted to call them the shoot of my planting in Isaiah 60. They were to be a planting of the Lord. Before this could be the Lord told Israel they must be uprooted and exiled from their land thus says the Lord I have planted them and I'm plucking them up Jeremiah 45. This will not be a permanent transplant. God specified his covenant with David. I will appoint a place for my people and I will plant them there that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And that's repeated in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. And last here in the book of Amos, it's reiterated the promise. I will plant them in a land and they will never... This is the future. This is the eschaton. This is what God is going to do in the future. So no matter what our life might feel like or look like or be experiencing now and it's not the way you wish it would be, there's not a bright future. There's a perfect future. A perfect future. Everything's going to work. No more sin. No more suffering. No more cancer. no No more broken relationships. No more disappointments with people. No more loss of promotions or jobs or contracts. A perfect environment. And that's why we're called to live faithfully. It's better to repent and face that future than to live in sin and face that future.